Father, I do thank you for Phil and his tireless labor, um, his sacrificial giving in his heart to see people grow in Christ. And um, Lord, I, I just I think of the reward that awaits him because of the the service he's given. Um, Father, and it is uh, no small thing, God, to to serve with someone like this. And and I, I do look forward to many years to come of serving together with one another. And we would pray, Lord, though, in his absence, God, that you would raise up other leaders, other elders, God, to help in the shepherding work. I thank you here at Rock Valley Bible Church that we all are ministers, right? We all are servants. And so much of ministry takes place here apart from me knowing about, apart from me stirring and initiating, um, and would pray that that would just continue to grow and abound, that we all would be about Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, that we would be about looking into other people's lives and figuring out how it is that we can stir them up to love others and to serve others. That is, to the, the downcast and brokenhearted, that means going and encouraging them. And to the, to the proud, it means rebuking them. And to the weak, it means strengthening them and, and being a shoulder to uh, lean on. And so, Lord, would pray that we... The church would go forth and that you would guide us and direct us as you have done. Uh, I have full confidence that you will do that. And just would pray for Phil, as I know is even my prayer, as I, as I think of days when I will step down and not be a pastor here anymore. The, the true measure of leadership is what happens when you're gone. And uh, just so Lord would pray that for Phil, just uh, his leadership as an elder would, would shine even though he's not an elder. And Lord, I pray for the day. God, when I leave Rock Valley Bible Church, that uh, the legacy would continue on long and strong and that we might not miss a beat because the church here isn't about people leading personalities. It's about Jesus Christ, him crucified. It's about the gospel. And uh, so, Lord, we pray you'd strengthen us for that. I I pray also as we open your word, God, teach us, God, show us of, of how terrible things are here on earth and yet how great things are as we await the glory that there is to come. God, help illumine my mind. Help me to, to know what to preach and how to say. And we'd all be stirred, God, to, to look not for our best life now, but to look for our life to come, which is far better than anything we could have today. So stir us in those ways. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want to uh, <clears throat> talk to you about uh, a book, a children's book. How many of you kids have read this book? Some of you, okay. I, I, this week I asked Yvonne, I said, Yvonne, do we have this book, uh, Alexander and the Terrible, Holy, her, the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? And she said, no, I've chosen not to have that book in our house because it's all about this complaining, bratty little child. And so I can appreciate that, but you can, you can look at this. This is a, a story of a, a day in the life of a complaining little boy named Alexander, and his day didn't go very well, and he was quick to complain and let everyone know about it. His day began when he was in bed, because he went to bed with some gum in his mouth, and he found out when he woke up in the morning that there was gum in his hair. And when he got out of uh, bed, he tripped on his skateboard, which you can see there is, is upside down. And... Uh, then he got ready for school. He put his sweater on, but it got all wet in the, the faucet where he was trying to, trying to wash up a little bit. And, and at breakfast time, his brothers and their cereal got these little trinkets, and he got cereal, and that wasn't so good. And he said, I think I'm going to move to Australia. 
And in riding to school, he sat in the middle seat where he was scrunched and he complained that he was going to get car sick and nobody seemed to listen to him. At school, the teacher liked the pictures of the other students better than his. And at lunch, his friends had nice desserts in their lunch boxes, but his mother forgot to pack him any dessert. After school, he went to the dentist and who found a cavity. He said, next week, we'll fill that cavity. And Alexander said, no, next week, I'm going to be in Australia. And uh, on his way home from the dentist, he, he fell in the mud. And at dinner, they had lima beans. And uh, his bath was too hot. And at bedtime, his, his brother took back the pillow that he had given him. And his Mickey Mouse light bulb had burned out. And, and he, he said, it has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And his mom said that some days are like that, even in Australia. <laughs> like that. Well, that's like a small picture of life is really what it is. Because truth be told, life is difficult and things often go bad. Am I? I'm off. I am on. I am. Why don't you help me here? I'm on. Um, small picture of life because life is difficult and things go bad. As Job said, right, man who's born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. And it's really because we live in a fallen world that's been tainted by sin. Our, our days are few and full of trouble. Now, the good news is this, that we have better things to look forward to as believers in Jesus Christ, right, we, we can expect to live in the new Jerusalem forever that Brian read for us. I mean, I, I, just, I love how I didn't talk to Brian about reading Revelation 21, but that's, that's, like, that's what the text is talking about. It's talking about the glory that is to come where there's no more tears and no more death and no more sorrow and no more pain. The gates of the cities are made of pearl. The gates of the city are made of pearls and the streets are made of pure gold. The glory of the Lamb shines throughout the whole city. And that's what we have to wait, look forward to. But, but that's, the, that's the future. That's the glory someday. But today, right, we know, we know grumbling. We know, we know groaning, right? We know trouble and sorrow and, and hardship and death today. Today is filled with disappointment and struggle and aches and pains and regret and grief and frustration and toil distress, anxiety, worry, misery. And I just say, the older you get, the more you know of those things. Is it true? Older ones among us? The older you get, the more you know of the pains and trials and sorrows and difficulties of life. See, it's only in the future that we will know this glory about which Paul is speaking. It's not for now, it's for later. My message this morning is, is entitled, let's see, we got it here, is entitled, From Groaning to Glory. From Romans 8, if you haven't opened your Bibles, Romans 8, 20, 18 through 25. If you want to open your Bibles there, I encourage you to do that. If you didn't bring a Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you, 944 is, is where it is. I want to read our text. In fact, it's right there on the screen. Um, I'll just read it for you. You can look up there. You can read in your Bible. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the, cre- for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And I trust you can see my message, right? From groaning to glory. This text is filled with groaning words. I mean, right there in verse 18, we see Paul talking about suffering. That's, That's a groaning word. And in verse 20, and he speaks about futility. That's a that's a desperate sort of word. And in verse 21, he's speaking about bondage and and groaning comes up there both in 22 and in 23. And we see glory mentioned both in verse 18 and in verse 21. And that's why I've entitled my message from groaning to glory, because that's what what Paul is talking about in this in this text. These two concepts, right? The struggle today, but the glory that is to come. And he begins, first of all, to to compare these two. He puts groaning and glory like, like right next to each other. It's almost, almost as if on a scale. He says, well, let's, let's compare these things. And, and one of the things he says in verse 18 is, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, right, if you put these things on a scale, the scale is just going to go, kunk, right? The sufferings here are so light and trivial they're just going to go whoop and, and, and the glory here is just going to come down heavy and strong. He says they're, they're not even worth comparing. You might not even put them on the scale because you might break the scale is what he says. It's, it's like comparing LeBron James to a first grader who can't even get the ball to the rim. It's like comparing Mount Everest to a sledding hill in Rockford. It's like comparing the the Taj Mahal to a sandcastle built on the beach. It's like comparing the Grand Canyon to a roadside ditch. There's really nothing. There is is no comparison. They're in in different leagues. But I want you to think about what Paul is saying here. He's not dissing suffering. He's not saying that suffering doesn't exist. He says that suffering does exist. And, And he says even in chapter... 8 verse 17, that, that we will be fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also be glorified with him. He's, he's talking there about a cost. He's talking there about a difficulty and hardship. And I just say suffering in this world is great. <clears throat> Paul would not deny this. And I, just, I, I hardly need to remind you of the magnitude of this. I mean, big news stories this past week, a couple weeks, Las Vegas. 58 people killed, 489 injured in an evil act of random violence. We're seeing big news stories like influential film producer who's been outed as a sexual predator. More than 30 women have come forward detailing of the ways in which they uh, were victims of his deviant behavior. And this is just this is this is just like what Hollywood is. Right. I mean, this is one person exposed, but this is what it is. You want to get around, you got to sleep around is kind of what, what the deal is. And, and there's just suffering because of that. Or, or general, general stories of suffering. The, the thousands dying every year from heroin overdose in our country alone. 
The tens of thousands in our country alone murdered every year. The hundreds of thousands of abortions taking place in our land. And that, and that harms the baby and that harms the mother in untold ways that we know not of. There are global stories of suffering. The war in Afghanistan, tens of thousands of civilian casualties. The civil war in Syria claimed more than 300,000 people so far. The brutality of the regime like North Korea where Kim Jong-un lives in luxury as his people starve. The, the suffering of the people there is great. On top of that, there's disease. There's, there's heart disease, strokes, diabetes, HIV, tuberculosis, cancer. Each of those diseases alone kill millions of people every year. 55 million die every year in this world. 55 million is a lot of people. Top of this, natural disasters we've seen in our country. Hurricane Harvey causing $100 billion of damage in the Houston area. Hurricane Irma, similar damage in, in Florida. Puerto Rico, much of it still without power after Maria ripped through there some three weeks ago. More than 150 people dead in recent earthquakes in Mexico City. Wildfires in Northern California has killed dozens this year alone. On top of that, you add poverty. You add hunger. You add human trafficking. You add exploitation. You, you add the verbal hurts, emotional trauma. You, you add the countless other sorrows in this life. And it's to say that, that we live in a world of suffering. And that's, that's only today. And think about the thousands of years of, church, of history that we have. In which there were world wars and holocausts and slavery and, and plagues. I'll just say this, there's great suffering in the world. In fact, the suffering in the world is so big and so dominant. This caused many people to say, if, if that's true of this world, how can there be a God? Like, how can a good God allow this to happen? And it's caused people just to, just to doubt God because of, of the enormity of suffering in this world. And those who make this argument really fail to see that a, a little pain is often... Uh, leads to great reward, like the surgeon cuts and wounds, but he repairs. And, and, and though after the surgery it's worse, it gets better and better, right, Steve? It's it better and better. Or how about the athlete? Long hours inflicting pain upon himself, right? disciplined in the in the diet. He wants to eat things, but he doesn't. He's disciplined in the diet only to produce better things in the end. <clears throat> And that's really what's happening when Paul says it's not even worthy to be compared. Verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In some way, I think that God allows the evil into, in the world just to show how great the glory is going to be. Because if this evil, which I tried to just paint a picture in some regards, just how big it is and how massive evil and how massive suffering is in this world, which is big. Paul says that doesn't even compare with the glory that's to be revealed to us. You might say it this way, the glory is so much greater that it makes all the suffering seem as nothing. It speaks to how great the glory is, right? And this glory is not only different in kind, right? Suffering is bad, but glory is good. It's not only different in amount. Suffering is small, but glory is big. But it's also different in length. Suffering's but for a moment. But glory is for eternity, never ending bliss and joy in the presence of God. And eternity, listen, wipes away everything on this fleeting earth. 
right? When you consider eternity, it makes all suffering, temporal suffering, pale and insignificant. I don't even know that was a word, suffering, temporal suffering. This makes it all pale. Like, like when, when, when you go out for thousands and thousands of years, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shiny as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And 70 years of hardship and toil will seem but nothing a million years out. But notice, though, this glory isn't for everyone. Look closely at the end of verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Those last words, right? Revealed to us. Paul's saying us. That includes him. That includes the one who he's writing. And he's writing to your church. He's writing to those who are professing a faith in Christ. He's talking about Christians. That the sufferings of present time are not worth comparing the glory that's to be revealed to Christians. To those who have placed their faith in Christ. Because not everyone will experience this glory. If you're not part of the us, you're not going to experience this glory. Because those apart from Christ will, will perish. There is this divide that Paul is putting, putting in here by using this word to us. That we get the glory. See, there's this us side and there's this them side. And which side are you on? Are you on the us side? Are you going to taste and see this glory? Are you on the them side? And the us side is simply this. The ones who have said, Christ, I, I'm, I'm no good into myself. I, I have nothing. I'm sinful. I'm broken. And I come to you by your grace. I, I just need forgiveness. And the them side is the side that says, I don't need God. I can live my life just fine the way, way I'm doing. And those people will will face what the rich man faced in the story what Jesus told. Now, he illustrates this, this division. Luke 16. Two people. There's a rich man, clothed in purple, fine linen, <clears throat> feasted sumptuously every day. And there's a poor man named Lazarus. He laid his gate covered with sores. Dogs licked his sores. This poor man desired to be fed from what fell from the scraps of the table. When they died... Lazarus knew and experienced glory at Abraham's side. But the rich man did not. He was in torment in Hades. Torment so badly, he cried out. Luke 16, 24. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to tip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Abraham says, not possible. There's this, this, this chasm between us that you can't cross. And that's the difference between being an us and being a them. And the glory is revealed to us who've come, come to Christ. And, and, and we, we know that, that the sufferings here are, are not worth comparing the glory. We've seen the glory is so much better and so much more worth it. That that's what we're going to live for. In fact, it says, so we'll get to maybe today. Um, verse 24, in this hope we were saved. Right, This hope of something better than this life. Joel Osteen wrote a book called right, Your Best Life Now. He's, just, he's showing you his cards that he's a false prophet because our best life isn't now. Our best life is the life to come, right? Paul would write a book about our best life to come where he calls it the glory. And, and, and what's great about this glory is it comes by grace. We've been thinking about Reformation Sunday. We've been thinking about um, sola gratia. All this glory comes not because we're so great, but because God is gracious. Romans three twenty two, right? Grace comes by the, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
for all the sin and fall short of the glory of God, that we're justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. It's God's gift to us. And those who are on the them side and who continue to, to walk their own ways and rather than trusting in Jesus have only themselves to blame because God says, here it is on a platter. You can take it and they refuse. But the great thing, Romans 5.1, is that when we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And with peace with God, we can anticipate the glory that is to come. And I'm just telling you, you want to be part of the us. You don't want to be part of the, the them. Because the us will see and experience this glory. Well, there, there's the comparison. And next we see the waiting, which really is the, the crux of the, the text here. He's talking about suffering. And when you're suffering... All suffering seems big. It's very difficult. James 1 says we ought to consider it all joy when we fall into various trials because of what it produces. But I say that when you're in the midst of a trial, it's very hard to count it all joy because the trial is long and the trial is hard and the suffering is deep. But Paul is encouraging us in this waiting. However, before we wait, Paul then talks about this creation. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What what Paul has done in these verses is focused away from us to just the realities even of creation, personifying creation. It's, It's as if you were, creation is this person, who can, who can wait and who is waiting. And Paul's point is that this creation waits for the glory to come. I mean, look, look at verse 19. We see the creation waiting. Rocks are waiting. Mountains and rivers and trees are waiting. We just think, well, of course, they got infinite patience. They have good patience, right? Maybe we can learn a few things from rocks about their patience, right? They never complain. They just simply wait, right? haven't seen a dirt clod complain or a beach complain. It's just waiting, just waiting and waiting. We, we see also creation personified in, in verse 21. We see that the creation is longing to be set free to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And see, it happened because when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, its effects went far and wide. And it certainly affects everyone who ever lived. We, we saw back in Romans chapter 5 when we were there that Adam's sin brought death to everyone. That's why we die, because Adam sinned. That's why we're guilty in sin, because we sinned in Adam. He was our representative head. And, and uh, we, we die with the law, without the law, because we receive his condemnation of death. But Paul here expands the effects of the fall, not just to people, but to the creation itself. Or look at verse 20. He says, the creation was subjected to Futility. You guys like futility? Whenever I, I do plumbing, that's like futility. Like I try to put the things on and there's still drip, 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 drip. So I take it off and I try to put something on and it's still just drip, 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 drip. I try to take things off and I try to get it there. And then pretty soon I crank too hard and my plastic things break. And then I got to go to the store and come back again. And I, I, plumbing to me is futility. It just doesn't quite work right. And that's what it means. This created order doesn't quite work like the way it's been designed. When Adam and Eve were set in the garden, it was perfect. Perfect temperature. Perfect weather. Plants grew with little effort. Animals lived together in peace. But it all changed when they sinned. 
listen carefully to the curse. I'm not even sure you've noticed this before. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But you see that when Adam sinned, the, the curse came upon the serpent, curse came upon Eve, curse came upon Adam. But Adam's curse is really upon the creation. Like things started growing that never grew before, like thorns and thistles. And this ground was cursed. I think that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about being subjected to futility. It stopped functioning the way that it was intended to. And it wasn't creation's fault. Look, look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Right? It wasn't creation who, who sinned. Right? It was Adam who sinned, but creation has felt the, the repercussions of it. Just like we. We weren't... Adam sinned, but we feel the repercussions of it. All right? And just like creation does as well. And so you see here, but verse 20, the big question is, who subjected the world to futility? Was it Adam who sinned? Some say that. Some say it was the devil, right, who, who fell first. But it can only be God. It's the New American Standard capitalizes there because of God, because of him, capital H, who subjected it. That is because God is the one who cursed creation. See, God is the one who subjected the earth to our fallen state. And God is the only one who can fulfill the hope of verse 21. This is God's hope, right? Because of him, because of God who subjected the earth to this futility in hope, because God knew that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's God's plan for the world. That sin brings destruction, but the glory comes later. And that glory is what the creation is waiting for. And I'm not sure you've ever thought about this before. I mean, it's not a major theme in Scripture. It's probably why you maybe haven't thought about it very much. But a couple Psalms speak this. Psalm 96 speaks about when the glory comes. Creation gets out for joy. Listen to Psalm 96, 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in faithfulness. And the psalmist here is thinking about that time in the future when God comes and he judges the world in righteousness. And when he judges his people in faithlessness. And when the wrongs are avenged and then all is made right again, the creation shouts for joy. The sea will roar and the fields exult. And it says even the the trees will sing for joy. And maybe we just look upon their beauty, but we've never heard their beauty before. Metaphorically speaking, we will hear their beauty someday as they sing out. The same thing, two, two psalms later, Psalm 98, verses 7 through 9. Let the sea roar at all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. There it is. Same thing. Rivers clapping. Hills singing. It's because creation is personified. I think it's something we don't think about very often, right? Because we don't think about the effects of sin has upon the created order. 
I mean, Brian read for us from Revelation 21. Revelation 21 speaks about a new heavens and a new earth. Why do we need a new heavens and a new earth? Because the first heavens and the first earth are broken because of sin. So, you know, we, we can understand earth and we can understand the, the implications of, say, pollution in this world. Maybe we can understand men and their, their domination, maybe bringing species to extinction, maybe taking forests and making them deserts. And we kind of understand that. that ha- but, um, but it says in Revelation 21, there'll be a new heavens. Have you ever considered that Adam's sin maybe had far more reaching effects even than our planet? Maybe it affected Mars and maybe it affected the moon, right? Because we've already littered the moon, right? And we're littering Mars with a couple of spaceships and we just blew something into Saturn just recently, right? But even someplace we've never been, right? Alpha Centauri, the closest star. Why does God need to replace? Why does God need to have a new heavens? If not something has happened to the whole creation. In fact, look at verse 22. It says, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He says, has everything about creation. Creation knows that something is wrong. And why is it that so many people don't even see that anything's wrong? They go along life like, like it's, it's all good. It's not good. What we have here on earth is a distortion of what is best. There's something that's just not right. And the creation's longing for the day in which we made right. And so I said, when is that day? There's a little phrase I skipped in verse 19. So go back there. You might, might look at it. I skipped it until now because now's the punch. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, right there, they're waiting for this time in which the sons of God are revealed. They are shown to be true, right? When God reveals exactly who his children are, right? When God separates the us from the them, when God separates the the sheep from the goats, when he condemns to hell those who have failed to believe, and when he brings into his glory those who are his friends and who's followed him. Maybe you remember the story, the parable of the wheat and the tares that, that Jesus tells. He tells a story in Matthew 13 about this field and the farmer planted this, this field. But while he was sleeping, his enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And, and all was fine until the plants began to sprout and his servants then noticed the problem. They noticed that there was weeds growing up amidst the plants. And they came to the master and said, Master, did you not sow good, feed in your, good seed in your field? Why then are there weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, no, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you uproot the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat and put it into my barn. And then Jesus interprets the parable like this. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Put everything together. Here's how it works, right? Just as the weeds were gathered together, burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, who will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then... The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He has ears, let him hear. Do you have ears this morning? Are you listening? 
It's the sons of the kingdom will be revealed because there's wheat and there's tares and it's going to be this great division, right? Psalm 96 and Psalm 98 talked about it was the judgment. It's when God comes back and reconciles everything to himself. There's there's the good and the bad. And it's at that point that the creation sings. Verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God because when the sons of God are revealed, that's when God was going to restore all things and give creation a facelift. New heavens and a new earth. And the creation will rejoice. In fact, even look down at verse um, 23. We see it's not only the creation that groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And here again, it's this distinction about the we and the them. But, but this, this distinction here has been talking about creation. The creation's been waiting for verse 19, 20, 21, and 22. And now he comes to us. So it's not only just the creation, but it's, it's us. It's people. We are the first fruits of the Spirit, right? We've been born again from above. We, we who have the Spirit, who the, the Spirit is working within us, right? The, the promises of chapter 8 about if you have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to Him. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Him. Right? I mean, just, just look at um, um, what verse I'm talking about. Like, like verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right? So you have the Spirit of God and that demonstrates you are a son of God. And that's what it means the first fruits. Like the, the first inklings of the Spirit is what we have. So we have the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus, but that's only the first fruits of what we'll get because it will be showered upon us the glory of the time when he comes back. But we who have that, we know that something's wrong. This is the Romans 7, right? This is the struggle between, I know what I, I need to do. I delight in the law of God and the inner man, but I'm not doing that. But I want to do the, the good that the Spirit's prompting me to do. And, and I'm groaning. And I'm longing for something better. I'm groaning inwardly as I wait for the adoption as sons. But you say, well, wait a minute, Steve. Didn't you say last week that we were adopted? I did. My message last week from verses 14 to 17 is the privileges of adoption. And one of the privileges, verse 14, is that God leads us, right? All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And in verse 15, this is, this is the privilege of adoption, that He claims us. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There it is. He's claiming us by adoption, but we see even here that there's this future adoption, and it's, it's like the Bible always talks. It's, about, it's sort of here, but it's not fully here. Theologians call it the already, but not yet. And that's what we're talking about with adoption, that it's, it's there, but it's, it's not yet. And another privilege is that, that God assures us, verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Yes, we are children. And we can look forward to this glory if we believe and trust in Christ. And God gives to us, right? We saw the adoption, right? He said, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And that's what we're talking about, the, the adoption of sons, right? When we fully, fully embrace. And, and you know, I, I ran across this, um, this video this week. It's very interesting in our home. Oftentimes, after I preach, my kids are like, oh, dad, you should have said this. I was like, oh, man, you should have told me that like on Friday. And I would have said that. And that would have been like perfect. Like, um. Like a couple of weeks ago, I'll just I'll share it now. Okay, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the um, uh, the people being killed by their pet bear, right? 
And, and I had another illustration, right? Do you remember? The snake, right? And we thought, like, that's a dumb way to die. And you know, my kids are singing. There's this app on their phone. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you, young, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the younger generation is. And so if I'd have known it, I'd have played this dumb ways to die. Like you're, you're wrapping this snake around your neck. That's a stupid way to die. You're cleaning the, the bear pen with a bear, right? That's a stupid way to die. And there's dumb ways to die, right? It's got people walking in front of trains and they're doing all this sort of, sort of stuff. Um, but anyway, here's, here's an illustration of something I saw, which had I seen this, I would have brought it up last week. It's, a, it's one of those Facebook videos that you, uh, that you see. I'm not sure if you've seen this, but this is adoption. And this is one of those things. I don't know if the volume's going to come through. It's really, it's okay if it doesn't. It's just kind of music in the background. It's got this script. I'm going to read it as it goes along so you're not going to miss it. So here's where it goes. It goes like this. This 11-year-old girl is about to find out she's getting adopted. Tanya Butterfield was at school when the school office manager found out the good news from Tana's soon-to-be-forever mom, Jennifer Fisher. Soon-to-be-forever mom. She asked if I, if I would be sure to tell her sweet girl that when she came by my desk for a daily visit, she knew that she'd want to know right away because she'd been so worried to the office manager. Fisher and her husband are adopting Tana after two years of fostering. There it is. There's a great picture of adoption. And that that's us. That, that, that yes, we've been fostered. And yes, we're being cared for. And there is an adoption. And, and it's, it's already. But, but yet... Do you want to be adopted so bad that that's your heart? When you find out you're adopted, you're a son of God. You're just jumping into your father's arms or your mother's arms in this case. That, that's what it's about. And it's about the future redemption that we have, the redemption of our bodies. When Paul asked at the end of Romans 7, verse 24, Wretched men that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, you just wait. You just wait. Because today's a day of suffering. Today's a day of groaning. Today's a day of hardship and toil and struggle. But there's a day when your body will be redeemed and you will be rid of that. Well, we're just gonna, I'm just going to mention the hoping that comes. Really, it hardly even needs mentioning because it just kind of opens itself up, right? For in this hope we were saved. And the hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope... For what we do see, we wait for it with patience. And here's, here's the groaning to glory. And, and we're just hoping, right, in trusting in Jesus. Really, hoping is another, another verb for waiting. But a hoping is, uh, is, is a confidence. It's almost like a, a faith in the future of something that's going to take place. And in this faith, in this, in this hope, of this, this security of knowing that, that this world is messed up. And I'm messed up. And I see sin. I see Christ. But it's going to be better. And that's the hope which we're saved by, right? We're saved by having a, a hope in a better life then. And that's the dynamics of everything that Jesus preached. He says, it's not here upon the earth. It's those who are in heaven. Do not fear him who killed the body, right? But fear him who can throw cat, cast soul and body into hell. And that's where our hope lies. It lies, lies not in here now, but it lies in the future. So have you been saved? It's in this hope that we are saved. 
Are you saved? Is that where your hope lies? Beyond this world. You know, one of the biggest problems we have with Americans is that we are so filthy rich. Even the poorest among us are in the top echelon of richest in the world. We're so rich, we got so much in this life that we don't look for the life to come. But we're saved by looking for the life to come, to anticipating this revealing of the children of God. And that's what this groaning to glory is about. I do find it interesting that, that Paul, even through here, nowhere really describes a lot of the glory. You've got to trust. Right? He doesn't tell you everything that's about it, because that's the fundamental nature of waiting. That's the fundamental nature of hoping. Hope that's seen is not hope. Right? We're not hoping for everything described. We just have a couple chapters in Revelation 21, 22. Some pastors in Isaiah. Right? Some other things about the glory. But it's going to be good. It's not going to disappoint if you believe and trust and hope there. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. I would pray you would help us to live life appropriately here upon earth that we would be realizing the groaning that that we have god that we would god look to you to realize that you're the one who has the ultimate glory stir in our hearts god afresh that we might search after you and seek you god i thank you that you are easily found by those who seek you with all their heart that's right here in the scriptures right about christ what he has done for us on our behalf on the cross And I do, I do pray, God, that we might even look back today, look back 10,000 years from now on today, thinking about that message about glory and how much better it is now that we've been in glory for 10,000 years and we have more than 10,000 look to come. So God, help us in these things. Be our grace. God, open eyes. May we realize even this month about the great reformation. Now it's all about your grace. It's all about how much you have done for us. Pray in Jesus' name.